Welcome to Advanced Fashion Disruption, with co-hosts Benson Roberts III and Megan Somerville, where we discuss the tragic, the predatory, the glory, and the deep beauty of fashion. Okay, so we're back. We've um, had a little bit of soda water to drink and rested our bodies and wiggled them, and we've talked about our next questions, I, I too. I totally <laughs> went to the bathroom. I'm going to just be honest, because we said we were going to have claret. I mean, people, people poop, okay? Just, and it's okay. The, the body, body doesn't stay. The body has its own needs, and you should take care of it, people. And I think it's also astounding, like how in touch we all became with our bodies in the pandemic, too. Like, really checking in with ourselves physically and emotionally, probably more than any of us ever have in our You're right. Lives. And I wonder if people realize what a privilege that actually was. Right. This moment of retrospective when everything was coming at us 90 to nothing, like it's pretty incredible. Um, and, and what a price it's just kind of mind boggling really. Yes. Okay. So I want to jump right into some difficult, um, talk about fashion. Um, and for all designers really, um, I think we touched on it earlier about where our um, inspiration comes from. And when I met you, um, I knew you as um, Benson, Mr. Benson, and your muse. Um, I know that for that period of time um, that you both had a lot of influence on the art that you were creating with each other and um, the voice that your fashion had through his body. And um, like it chartered this identity, like, and, and I use the word chartered in that you, like it propelled y'all across the country. Um, and in my eyes, a lot of ways seemed inseparable. Um, but as I see you emerge from this uh, change of muse, change of heart, um, or change of heart space, I guess is a more delicate way to put that. Um, and you had no choice. And then how COVID has affected your designing brain in that grief space. First of all, I'd like to tell you that you're a cunt. <laughs> it's a big deal. Well, it's a lot. Well, it's well, like a know, big I, ball. I said nothing hey. was sacred. Um, so, um, I met him uh, when he came to a uh, an audition to model suits, and we hit it off right away. We both had silly senses of humor. We both uh, didn't take ourselves too seriously. I, I remember at that first meeting, I told him he was sort of a uh, an exact cross between Troy Donahue and Jethro Bodine, and that country cowboy flavor mixed with the Hollywood good looks uh, would sell well. Um, I watched him go and we booked in Milan in uh, 2008 when the economy here collapsed. And when he came back, um, we had taken some pictures of him in my crazy punkity rockety wear for a collection I was working on and some pictures of him in Calvin Klein underwear and cowboy drag uh, for his book and for his promos. And putting our heads together, we decided that we could create a cowboy and Indian calendar. Now, before any of you want to jump on me for creating a cowboy and Indian calendar, I am one third native, blow me. So moving on, uh, we began to travel and um, our relationship was uh, always very appropriate and very friendly. I've had a long standing rule or I had a long standing rule, I should say, let's be honest. Uh, for the first 20 years of my career, um, I've never crossed the boundary between being the, the designer, the person in charge, and stripping my models. And for those of you who don't know what stripping is, it's a Yiddish word. And if you look it up in the dictionary, you'll see that it basically means fucking. So I never fucked my models. I never fucked around with my models because I understood the danger and uh, the possibility of people perceiving that I was giving preference to the model that I was fucking. And that's dangerous on two levels. Number one, everyone suddenly wants to be preferentially treated. So you got all your models trying to fuck you. 
And uh, it, that was always going to be a shit show. You know, 20 years into my career, I'm now in my um, mid thirties or so. And I realized that I worked 20 hours a day. I mean, Megan, you, you remember, I worked 20 hours a day for a decade and a half. 140 hours a week. Yeah. The only humans I saw either worked with me as uh, junior partners in the manufacturing arm of the business, or they were models. And I am a man surrounded by beautiful men and beautiful women. And so eventually, uh, you know, I, I, I was old enough to not show preferential treatment. And any model that I was dating or seeing or spending time with absolutely knew that our relationship, it wasn't a secret, but it wasn't to be uh, had in front of other models at official productions. Models knew we were dating. We didn't hide it. I didn't make it a dirty secret that anyone had to keep because that would be ridiculous. But when we were together, the relationship, uh, if we were at a rehearsal or if we were at a call or if we were at a show, the relationship uh, was turned to zero so that we were always appropriate. Um, so, uh, he and I started as friends. Uh, it was several years, three years. Uh, he came back from Milan and had some experiences there and, uh, our relationship progressed to being a more physical relationship. And, um, I remember friends remarking, thank God, the sexual tension between you two for the last three years has been killing us. Uh, and you know, I was, I denied it. I denied any attraction. I denied that I had any feelings, but the truth is, is from the very first moment I met that man, I, I was probably in love with him. He had me at hello. I mean, he sounded like Matthew McConaughey who doesn't want to fucking fall in love with that voice. So, uh, we, we, and with the, the freckles, freckles. He, he, he thought he was a blonde. <laughs> I'm like, honey, you're a ginger, um, perfect. Uh, fit model when he worked in Milan, and not only did he do runway and editorial, but people paid him a fortune for his perfectly proportioned body. My menswear collection, uh, I, I really um, truly developed as a menswear designer because he was the muse and I had access to a fitting model and um, many good things about it. Uh, when I had the lung injury that caused me to have to retire from fashion for a while and I sold everything off, um, we would make a set of costumes. We would tour about photographing in different amazing locations around the country. Uh, and then we would print calendars and take those calendars and tour the country and also shoot. So I, I think we traveled well over half a million miles from one end of the country to the other. We did 40, 44 states. The northern, the northernmost states, we didn't do Alaska. We didn't do Hawaii. Uh, we didn't do North Dakota. And we didn't do someplace else. The cold ones, we didn't bother. Minnesota, um, which is unfortunate because Minnesota, Wisconsin, we never did Wisconsin. And those those were on our plate for another calendar, but things deteriorated. So uh, he and I ended up opening a, a fabric business, as you recall, Textiles Designer Fabric Showroom in Austin, Texas, uh, which was a very successful enterprise. And then we expanded and partnered with a millionaire woman wannabe um, and opened White Star, which was never profitable because we let the millionaire woman wannabe be the CFO and she had her own little clicky group of people that were acting like the popular kids at high school and I suddenly found myself in the unpopular kids seat. Uh, I don't know that they ever became profitable. I left and started Blue Moon Manufacturing with him and I was profitable within days. All of that being said, um, there was as much good in the muse turned relationship partner turned business partner as there was bad. I think that I am still mm -hmm. alive because he was the only single person in my life that didn't treat me like a fragile dying thing after my lung injury. He would look at me and tell me, was I going to die or get out of the fucking bed and do something? He pushed me, he treated me like I was okay. And I know that, I know that sadly, though I never wanted it to happen. I was so sick on the road. I expected to die out on the road. That's why I chose that life. I was going to go die in beauty making art and that was gonna be a lovely swan song. Um, I've obviously gotten over that notion and I'm quite well now, but um, he did have to become a caregiver. And so I think eventually I was in the hospital so often after we started the business, you know, like two full years out of six, two full years worth of hospital days out of six years. 
And this is a this is a guy in his twenties. I think eventually I just became um, an equivalent to trauma. I think that it, it didn't matter if it was good or bad. It was all very traumatic because when is he going to uh, be rushed to the emergency room with a hundred and seven fever, dying again? I actually did die uh, during that period. Well, and the reality of caring for a chronically ill person is that there can be a lot of static and there can be a lot of fear. And when you're both creatively inspired by each other, I could see how that um, future vision could really begin to collapse and, and you for know, both you know, of you. For him, right? I have to imagine, and I'm, I'm talking more about him than I am me. Uh, for him, I have to imagine that he wondered what would he do without the part. I did the finances and taught him all about fabric and textiles. He, he got very good at it. But what would he do? Would he be stuck with a store? Uh, because I was so sick, I put everything, everything in his name. So if I died, my family are lovely people, but death and money make for strange bedfellows. And I didn't want them to fuck this, this guy over who had done 50% of the work. Um, a big part of the downfall of the of the, the relationship, friendship, business partnership was the perception that those assholes in Austin had that I was just his sugar daddy. Um, and, and, they, and they did not <laughs> right. realize that he literally did 50% of the work. He physically right. built the business. He was an amazingly smart man. And I know that, that you mentioned that it, it just sort of seemed confusing why I was with him, but... Um, I used to say that our relationship was absolutely perfect from the time we woke up till about two or three o'clock every afternoon when we realized that we weren't supposed to like each other. Um, he was challenging and he was inspiring and he was kind. He loved children and old people. Uh, he could be a real fucking asshole, but who can't? Um, drugs eventually entered the picture and uh, he he was struggling with that on and off then he made a beautiful baby and i was a third parent for five years and then it all went to hell um drugs re-entered the picture it took us about three years to completely untangle finances to become separate entities um, i left with the business he left with all of the personal goods that he wanted in the vehicles and um, that seemed like a great trade in 2019 pre-pandemic. Now I wonder, maybe I shouldn't have kept one of the vehicles. But um, he gave me far more than he took. And he helped me far more than he hurt me. Uh, one of the last messages I sent him was that I often hear his words. And while some of them were horribly cruel, it was not those words that I paid attention to or gave energy to. It was every uplifting, inspiring thing he ever said. And I told him that I hope when he thinks about my words, if he still hears them, I hope it is the uplifting things and not the horrible things that I said. And I told him uh, to continue chasing the dream. You can still do the, all of the things you wanted to do and be a dad. That's going to be okay. Uh, yeah. I miss having somebody to kick my ass. I miss having somebody to push me. And quite honestly, I, I'm not doing so well without that. I, I came to the realization recently, and you know, since the COVID and my, my brain, I have the brain injury shit that people deal with. Time is really uh, an odd quantity. Weeks can go by in minutes and minutes can take months. Um, but I recently realized that, and this is so fucking embarrassing. It's so pathetic. God, it's pathetic. I realized that if he were here or someone like him was here, I would work harder for them than I do for myself. That's a hard thing to recognize and realize. The muse is an incredible person. The muse is incredibly important. The muse often, honestly, Megan becomes um, becomes the partner. You look at uh, uh, Jean-Paul Good and Grace Jones. Um, the muse doesn't have to be somebody that is slept with. I've never slept with any of the female muses in my life. Um, and I do sleep with women. So uh, that's, that's a, that, but I've never clicked that way. And uh, he was a true partner in all senses of the word uh, for, for years, for a decade, basically. Um, so yeah. uh, a hard subject. That's why I called you a cunt. 
you, you know, you know how fucking hard this one is for me. And and talking about it, I revisit things that I simply put away. Have a muse, recognize the boundary of the muse, recognize if the muse has become a partner, set boundaries in the partnership, but please never become dependent on a muse to to be the source of inspiration that propels you through um, working to be successful in your day. Ouch. Would you like I, to take I know, a moment? You know, honey, to... I'm, good. I'm good. Thank you for offering, though. I, I, I okay. it's, it's a hard one, and I'm going to ask when, when we release the podcast that we do take his name out. Um, and I'm not doing that because I'm afraid or ashamed. I'm doing that out of respect for him. He is a father, and uh, his business does not need to be out on the webs. Okay, I'm in the hot seat. Yeah. Yes, you are. And I have a real doozy. Okay. Um, then you can hate me, but you need to answer. So back when you were putting the Cypress Vanguard together, you had mm -hmm. a list of people uh, who were going to join you in your fashion collective. One of them in particular, um, a fairly mediocre, decently well-known fashion star, who shall remain nameless, um was on the list and i mm. i warned you about them i warned you that they had worked with me and that when they left their position with me all of my slopers left with them and in fact their first collection was made obviously from my slopers mm. and um i think that at that point in time you had a fairly high esteem for them and it may have been one of the periods where you and I were not Judy girlfriends. Um, and then they, on a national television show, ripped you off, which was uh, so harmful and so hurtful and so um, debilitating that uh, it, it left you in a state. Uh, and, and honestly, I, honey, I think sometimes you're still in a state over that. Um, why didn't you listen? Why didn't you listen when I warned you? I told you that, that that they were a snake. Well, okay. So coming from a really retrospective place and, and being able to have, have eyes on years of distance between it, I think that my prevailing thought was I want to help the fashion community as much as I can. I I haven't experienced this with this individual. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, and at the time I was willing to take ownership for making that decision. Like, you know, I want, I want to give them a chance or, or maybe it's the Libra part of my brain of like, we can fix it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm not sure, um, but I didn't listen um, and I did include them and it created a lot of discord and havoc um, and it was, um, it was hard to be that wrong about a person, um, but like I, I didn't even watch the TV show. I was just, like, I had better things to do than watch television. Um, I was trying to, you know, help the fashion community and, you know, do my best to begin a co-op where people had a say in uh, the final sale of their garments. I, I thought that uh, our community deserved to have that kind of financial backing to help build themselves up. What I didn't actualize is the co-op in its entirety um, with all the ins and outs of a never having run a co-op before, a learning curve of behavior. And so going back to, I never watched the show, it wasn't until I got a call from our local fashion writer um, in Austin saying, Oh my God, did you see that? This national um, chain, worldwide chain, bought your design from them on TV. And I 
well felt really beat up i felt really that was abusive that was horrifying i felt really taken advantage of i felt that my i couldn't trust my judgment And so really going forward with the co-op and really handing over um, at that time um, when all of that went down on national television and kind of in the back scenes that I didn't talk about back home to anybody other than um, friends um, that were kind of connected to all of that. I felt a big need to step away for, from the governing and the formation of the co-op. And that's at the same time I lost two pregnancies. So I'm like, I'm having my pattern stolen. I'm having my family taken away from me. I mean, like under this immense amount of pressure of shutting down slash filing for bankruptcy for my old business. So sister and, um, you know, I embodied that persona so much that it it felt like, you know, everything was was lost. And I didn't know how I was going to come back. I really I really didn't. Well, you have come back and that's the important part. Uh, you know, um, I don't know if I ever told you because there was so much going on. It wasn't just the theft or the borrowing or the... Uh, <laughs> the um, accidentally taking of my slopers that was a problem there. I had uh, five um, partners. We were a general partnership in Texas. Three of the partners called me, two of the partners, excuse me, I was the third. Uh, Two of the partners called an emergency meeting and showed up at my house at like two in the morning. And I'm like, what's going on? the the fashion star had offered my two partners a position in their company without ever talking to me about leaving the company without ever discussing whether or not i would be uh amenable to my partners walking with them and i i then understood the absolute duplicity of that person and there was a conversation upstairs in the Cypress Vanguard. It was a lovely place. I, I wish that, that people could see it. A gorgeous courtyard with an actual beautiful uh, river cypress in the backyard, multiple rooms in and upstairs. I walked into a conversation upstairs where they were starting to pull the same shit to oust you. And uh, I was invited to become the replacement designer of women's wear. Yeah. And I, I stared at them like I didn't speak English anymore and just walked away. And I I think that that was the last time I I warned you that there was perfidy afoot. Be very careful. And I think that that time you listened because you, you began to make different choices and let other people take responsibility for choices. Absolutely. And, you know, the whole idea behind um the cypress vanguard and then that movement was to allow designers to have a meet and greet workspace with their client for an affordable price in that they paid for their footprint and they paid through a equitable equitable divided um retail presence um and you know, I think that um, if there wasn't so much ego in all of creativity's um, facets, and if somebody could figure out a really good co-op plan that really covered all of the butts, um, I think that it would have been um, a really joyous and prosperous thing because um, there are moments that are, are very fond for me um, at that location and it was magical. Oh, it was absolutely magical. I, I, I think I may have mentioned before, uh, mm-hmm. or, or maybe we talked about mentioning it. I don't know. Uh, we almost opened textiles there. Yeah. We just realized very quickly that there was not going to be enough space. And with the, the shenanigans that were starting to happen, I, I was like, yeah, we need to find our own place. As, as much as I'd like to be part of this group, I, I can't. Yeah. Um, and, and thankfully, uh, you know, 
you were able to eventually ex extricate yourself from that and uh, shake it off and carry on. And I would say that 98% of the um, people that had that experience with us um, are people that I'm still connected to socially or that I try and um, cheerlead for them when I see good things going on in their lives. And um, you work you know. with you work with some of them still. You collaborate <laughs> with some of them still, yeah, I which is awesome. No, I you know, OK, to, to, to finish this up, and I think that we need to start maybe doing this a little more with these these segments. What did you learn from that situation? I learned that I do not like retail um, as a career for myself. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this the same woman who just a month ago was asking me what I thought? Should you open a retail shop? I, well, I was like, <laughs> this retail what? place is what? amazing. Why am I looking at this? I'm a crazy person. Do you not want to keep your soul? Are you just looking for something to suck your soul away? Um. I, I do like the idea of, um, you know, going around and looking at beautiful things and being a buyer. I think that that sounds like a delicious job and we should totally talk about um, buyers, buyers too. We, we definitely will. Cause we, we are also our own buyers often. Mm -hmm. uh, and call it sourcing, but it's the same, it's the same job. It is okay. the same job. Um, we both have admitted that, that while we have asked the questions that we originally intended, yeah, that we each had a surprise question. Mm -hmm. I think that we should ask those surprise questions. Okay. You go first. <sighs> okay. And, I, and, I, and by the way, before we continue, I'm sorry. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, such a man. Um, I am proud of how you eventually shook that off and, and completely pivoted and rebranded yourself. And the fact that your work has evolved so much that you're no longer just designing and conceptualizing lingerie, but you're actually conceptualizing loungewear and resort wear. I am so proud that you were able to extract yourself from all of those heinous things that were happening. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And, you know, this past week, as I've been preparing um, my uh, Facebook episode um, articles about getting to know you, I, it's just kind of, and going back and rereading or watching videos um, that you have participated in, I'm just kind of in awe, like all of um, what was posted yesterday from the Swarovski Crystal Company um, and what I saw when I was in New York um, at their flagship shop, which was really, really cool at the time. Um, like, I had no idea, one, that that was you, or two, like how current that visual still is. I mean, the swans have that very um, Gloria Vanderbilt feel to them. And, um, you know, that has its own kind of um, royalty um, feel, you know. Um, but I, I like I'm really surprised at how current your work still feels and and you know Swarovski every year sometimes every six months have a new version of that cut with new music there are like 15 versions and it still plays in their shows and you can still find those images on their website That's um, we should talk about that because you and I have both done some pretty amazing things that should be an episode I would yeah love to, I would love to discuss how I got Swarovski um and how I and how I made uh, internationally well-known costumes on the international stage and beat out every other designer in the world for the spot to do that that commercial from my living room in Texas. I believe that's um, slated for our June episodes where um, we talk that. about um, our triumphs and celebs that blew us off. <laughs> ah, right, right, right. Da, da. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, your, your question. On to, the, on to the last question. Hopefully okay. this one is painful. Oh God! If Are it is, ready? it's okay. I'm, you know, I mm. ate prunes. Okay. Or, <laughs> we can make you a diaper. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, no, no, no. I would just order that diaper. I, I, want, I want, I want the celebrity tested diaper. <laughs> oh, it's like the thermometer is like this has been right. rectally tested. Right. Dear God. <laughs> okay dear god so here we go you have uh, moved back um to your hometown and um although covid has changed the entire game plan it's kind of like the universe's curveball for everybody um 
I am really wanting to dig deep and have you question as you go forward in this post-COVID world, what is it that you need to get back to that design table again? Wow. That should be an easy answer. And, and, it's and, not. And, and the, the, the simplistic trite answer is money. Mm -hmm. um, uh, COVID has destroyed my war chest. I came with money, um, which was good. I was able to find the place, secure the place, build out the place, stock the place, move two 26-foot trucks from uh, Smithville, Texas to Detroit over several months. I was able to deal with a, a four-month medical issue that had me in the hospital. Um, to come out, you know, to where we were starting to turn a profit of, of, of 4,000 a week. And that was just the beginning. We, we, we saw where we would have been making uh, easily 20,000 a week in the retail fabric store, plus the business that I was getting. Um, thank God I had that money. Thank God I had that money because when the pandemic came, uh, we were shut down. And as you recall, everyone thought that we were going to be shut down for a month. I said from the get-go that if we did everything correctly, it would be at least October, but I believed that based on the way I was seeing humans behave, it would be sometime in 2022. Yeah. I, I, sorry to be a prophet, but uh, here we are in 2022, and perhaps perhaps we now have it under control. And um, I, <laughs> they, we didn't have unemployment pandemic for gig workers and for the self-employed. No. I, was, I was looking at trying to get food stamps so that I could continue to operate and stay afloat and pivot into, obviously, the PPE was going to be big. Um, my unemployment took eight months to land in my bank account. So I went through every bit of my savings. I invested massive amounts of money and supplies to make masks. I took orders. I was shipping masks. Those masks Several of them made it, but out of hundreds, like like 20 masks made it to their locations. Um, as you recall, you were making masks, and in the early days, we were having really serious issues with masks not being considered essential. So they were just sitting in post offices sometimes for a month. And so the post office and the federal government gave us the guidelines that we should mark PPE as PPE. Um, in Detroit, that, that resulted in PPE going into the post office, never being scanned into the system being and picked. being stolen. Uh, and I don't know who was doing this dealing, but um, I have to imagine that the country was so terrified and that, that the ability to get a mask was so limited that um, it probably made sense to people who had to carry mail to take the masks uh, to keep themselves and their families safe. So I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm I've, I let a lot of people down. Was not my fault. There was a global pandemic. Uh, one of the things that's occurred to me, Megan, um, that I need to really reapproach the table mm -hmm. is I brought Texas Benson home. Mm -hmm. I brought factory worker Benson home. I brought business head Benson home. I brought the man in black home. I brought the biker looking gay man. Uh, butch version of Benson home, the guy that climbed mountains and scuba dived and jumped out of planes. I brought him home. Detroit actually requires of me that I should be Benson. Mm -hmm. This place demands that I be that Benson. This place is hungry for me to be that Benson. So that's something that I am, I am slowly opening myself up to. Um, I'm letting that genie out of the bottle more and more often. And, 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 and I should qualify that by saying this is the flamboyant, fabulous Benson whose pictures on our website. Not, and, not the biker and the wonderful Benson. shoes at the <laughs> right. socials. And, and the fabulous shoes. And, you know, that Benson's mm -hmm. coming out more and more and needs to come out more and more. Um, mm -hmm. I, I need to figure out who that is. Um, I definitely need to, to get the brain trauma from COVID handled. Because as you have seen, I have incredibly bad brain days where sending an email is just beyond my bandwidth. Um, where reading basic instructions is enough to put me into a nosedive that sends me to bed. Mm -hmm. And that needs to happen. Um, I definitely need to deal with the trauma and the depression and the anxiety over being um, uh, 
housing unstable and food unstable and income unstable for two years. Um, and, and then there was the loss of the whole business, not just the retail space, but the cut and sew space. The uh, fact that I, I do high-end garments and, and gowns and red carpet, and none of that happened. It's starting to happen again, but people still are not wanting to order gowns ahead of time because the numbers can change so rapidly that things get canceled. And we're yeah. still there. I mean, the summer is all, has, is is the is lull, it seems, and it, it has been for the last two years, but we don't know what's going to happen in the fall. So those markets are starting to come back. Like I like I said in our phone call this morning, I, I actually have multiple clients this week that are, are reaching out about potentially having work done. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Um, and what people don't realize that when you're in this man, manufacturing um, hat that you're wearing, that this is a global issue that people who, you know, you're in the US where granted we have a lot of things to be super duper thankful for, but there are people in other countries doing the same kind of work that completely got taken out. Completely, completely. Uh, the the, uh, <laughs> the output from the globe, the global fashion industry is usually produces and is worth uh, 2.8 to maybe 3.1 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. or trillion dollars, excuse me, trillion dollars. In uh, 2019 and 2020, it fell to $1.86 trillion. Yeah, and this vacancy lost, is uh, amazing. We lost fully a third of the, of, of the gross output, which also means that we lost a third of the 37 billion people who worked in apparel. Yeah. Um, and, and, so, and it was so treacherous. I, I so it's not I'm not tra- I, maybe treacherous is the word I'm looking for. It's been such a treacherous path to walk because, for me, fashion design is not just what I do. Yeah, it is literally who I am. It is my my sense of self, my sense of interface with the world, my sense of purpose, my sense of taking care of myself, my sense of community is fashion design. So I have lost my identity. I have lost my ability to interface. And picking it back up, Megan, is, has been challenging. Yeah. Um, it has been incredibly challenging because it's still painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been two years. My muscles have atrophied. I've sat in a chair for the most part. Um, I taught college at university for a year. Mm-hmm. It's daunting. It's daunting to pick it back up. And Honest- we're not done with the pandemic yet. Uh, yeah. And, and especially when you think about, okay, the, the reality of businesses that stay open um, is a really small percentage over, uh, you know, we're talking over the last hundred years. If you look at that data about people that start up a business and when that business um, folds or closes, that the average, I believe, is two and a half years, two and a third years, something like that. Right. And I know that COVID has really changed that dynamic because some really big players that would skew that data, like Macy's or Sears, you know, <laughs> um, downsizing those kind of things, that um, it's just so pervasive and that um, your circumstances um are one individual to what's going on to you as you're having this experience in this body there and two that the collective trauma in the fashion industry is really uh, deep and um empathetic people can really feel it resonate with it yeah absolutely you know when, when i when i talk to folks and um, and I tell them what's happened and they want to start with, oh, I'm so I say, look, I am one of millions of business owners in America whose business crashed. I was not singled out. Mm-hmm. I understand that it was nothing I did. Thank you for your uh, compassion and thank you for your uh, remorse on my behalf. But I, I don't feel special. Yeah. And, and globally, this is affected. So, so that has been the one thing that has kept me from feeling uh, well, no, that has kept me from thinking I was a failure. I still some days wake up and think that I'm a failure. I mean, the business failed under my watch. 
and so I must be a failure. It doesn't matter that I had no way to handle uh, the global pandemic, that mm -mm. America shut down for months, that Michigan didn't allow things like stores to be open for many, many months, that um, my air systems were not, uh, um, they were all circulatory and not uh, ventilating systems. So I wasn't even able to reopen in the two foot spots that I tried to be reopened in. None of that is, is my failure. Right. But I still feel that way. And when I remember that I am one of millions, it, it lessens the blow. Uh, maybe misery loves company, or maybe I just can't feel sorrier for myself than I feel for everyone else. Mm. And maybe, maybe, maybe what we're doing now is part of how I'm going to get back to the table, Megan. I hope so. I, and, and, and really me pressuring you, um, because I see this creativity, um, in you, um, and I see such devastation and loss in the brain bank of the fashion community that I felt like it was really the time. It's important. Um, it, it is. It is. And I, I will tell you a little secret. I am planning to eventually do my return to Detroit show. It's going to be a couple years late. Mm -hmm, my first great. show back as a resident, as a resident Detroit designer. Mm -hmm. I have 18 new pieces. 10 of them are cut, 19. Nine of them are in the process um, and just need to be finished. And I have sketched 15 new gowns that are definitely inspired by what we've all been through in the last two years. So the design process, the creative process is happening. I'm just not ready to say I'm open. Right. Well, and the other thing that I want to um, kind of interject right here for people to find in our aftercare series is because you are throwing this event, um, it comes at a cost to you. And what you and I will talk about it in the aftercare side is what you will have in place at that show to make sure that it benefits you in the greatest financial possible oh, way I, I can answer that question right now you want to do I, that now i did okay. i did a show here um seven years ago uh, uh sort of a reunion of the club that i i used to do shows in quarterly um my ticket sales were twenty dollars in advance 30 for a couple 30 dollars at the door 40 for a couple or 45 for a couple we sold thousands of tickets after I paid everyone, I walked with a hefty profit for doing the show, which made it okay for me to have spent the amount of money I spent to create the things for the show. Good. So I, Good. I, absolutely, I absolutely, I just, I want to address that I right up front. Absolutely monetize. When I do the show here, the tickets will be 20 bucks, 30 for a couple. They'll mm -hmm. be uh, 30 at the door, 45 for a couple. And um, that year at midnight or at 1230, we, we, we ran till two or 230 um, at 1230 when the show was over, because we had a midnight showing. Come on, guys. It's a nightclub night. I told the people at the door, let everyone in. Uh, I wanted some goodwill. One of the people from uh, my circle felt that we infringed on their uh, right to the club name. Um, and they threw an alternate party at the same venue and tore our little underground scene apart. We uh, even made it so that people who wanted to go to their party, if they brought their ticket stub from their party to our party, we would take the amount of their ticket stub off. Nice. We made it easy for people to do both. And then for goodwill at 1230, I said, if anyone else comes, don't charge them. The show is over. We've made mm -hmm. enough money. I can pay everyone and I will still have been able to afford to do this coming from Texas. Good. And uh, this time we won't do that. And they clicked another 1,200 people through wow. from uh, 1230 until 230. Mm -hmm. So the voyeur I, crush. <laughs> right. I, I, I anticipate that we will have those kind of numbers or higher because people are desperate for this. I've, I've been uh, talking with the DIA about possibly having them host it for giving them a portion of the ticket sales. So I might have it in that beautiful museum I sent you pictures of. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, I, I, I am an old man now. I'm, I'm not a young idiot who's taken advantage of. 
Uh, if I'm going to do a fashion show that is not specifically to market my clothing to buyers and the media press, if I'm doing it as an entertainment, I am the one that's promoting it and producing it and making the money. Good. All right. And then, and then how that works for that. me. Thank you. And how I, I, I'll finish by saying how that also works for me in the real industry is at home, I get a litmus test of what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. So I get paid to do my practice run before I take it to the coast. Yeah. So it, it's a win-win. All right. I have, um, I have a surprise question for you too. Lay it on me. Um, and it's <laughs> sometimes we are so in sync with our vibe. So you asked me about leaving uh, Texas to come home. Mm -hmm. And my question involves leaving home, which was Texas, to move to Denver. Mm. When you were the reigning uh, top designer in Texas, Austin Fashion Week did its first event, right? The party planner who was pretending to be a fashion show producer and, a pr producer and fashion professional uh, was, was aware of you. I, I mean, you were in every uh, magazine and newspaper in Austin and really quite a bit across Texas. Um, they completely ignored you. They didn't invite you, Texas top designer, mm -hmm. to come and do their inaugural show. Uh, that's, 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 that was one of the reasons that I approached you and said, hey, look, they're doing these events where you pay a price and see one designer's collection. Why don't we get together people who weren't invited or people who couldn't afford the ridiculous amount of money that they were asking for this fashion party and do a multi-designer show? Mm -hmm. We got the hottest spot in Austin, Texas, which even came complete with its own um, uh, hot topic, i.e. the sharks under the dance floor. And we did a multi-designer fashion show that was incredibly well-received. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's where we get to the question. Yeah, It was apparent from the start that that small regional show didn't really warm to you. <laughs> it was apparent. Like, like, like they eventually played ball with you because they had no other choice, but you were never really invited to the inside. Mm -hmm. uh, other than the fact that you gave the... Uh, them rent for the Cypress Vanguard. Right. Um, now that you've moved to Denver, which is another small fashion hub, is that city being any warmer to you? Oh gosh, no. Oh, sorry, that was really fast. <laughs> is, that, is that your question? Well, let, that, that, that is my question. <laughs> is, 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 it, is it Austin part two? Is it, oh. the, is it a lower level of hell? And, and if not, why do you suppose that this happens? I have my opinion. But why do you think that, that, that both of those communities did not just embrace you and, and, and exonerate you and, and lift you and uh, assail you with love? Why did none of that happen? Oh, man. Okay. So I think it's, um, I'm going to answer it in two parts then, I guess. Um, one is... Um, you know, was I welcomed um, into the quote unquote Austin fashion elite? No, I was always on the periphery of it. And it was, I was on the periphery because people liked what I did. They thought what I did was sexy. You know, even um, Stephen Mosier from the Chronicle was like, I don't know why I never wrote about you. And I was like, cause you don't like girls in underwear. Um, <laughs> so like, I think that uh, it was nice to have me around. It was nice to have a lingerie maker around who did classy, sexy things. Um, but I think it was more of a, you know, being the pretty girl on somebody's arm than um, being embraced or like, you know, the lover that lives out of town, like, you know, it, it felt it, now having kids, it, it feels very, we don't talk about Bruno. You know? <laughs> like, wow, wow. <laughs> um, and so like Ouch. just being, being a specifically lingerie maker and really kind of embracing that wholly and saying, no, I like, I do fitted lingerie, you know, I don't do strip club stuff. I don't like, that's not the image I'm going for. And that's not what I'm trying to tear down either. However, there was a specific look and feel that I wanted to have with my brand that um, was very romanticized and, um, you know, like a, a love spell to yourself. 
Um, and so um, I, I think that because I maybe am this kind of, um, you know, woo woo, la la, like, you know, let's put beautiful scents on our garments as we're steaming them. Let's, um, you know, put crystals in it um, for intention. Let's build a spell around loving yourself was a little, maybe too much out there. Um, I don't know. Um, maybe I didn't even reveal that enough. I don't know. Um, but I definitely wasn't part of the cool kids club there either. And, you know, it's whatever. I'll let my, my work stand. <laughs> I hear you're getting a little heated. Uh, no, I, you know, I wasn't either Megan. Um, uh, you know, when, when Stephen discovered my work, um, he was like, oh, darling, how have I never heard of you? And I said, because I've been having a career. I'm not here for the fashion lifestyle. Yeah. And if I was going to just be someplace for the fashion lifestyle, it wouldn't be flip-flop land. Yeah. It just wouldn't be. Uh, and I think that, that part of it was the same for you. I, I don't mm -hmm. know that it was specific because everyone loved the lingerie. It was often photographed. It, it was featured places. Uh, and your lingerie is not like, you know, zippered vaginas and, and, and tear off nipples. I mean, it's not, it, it's not um, overtly sexual. It's incredibly Hollywood glamour. I mean, this is the kind of lingerie that, that actresses uh, beg to be photographed in. And why I said that Hollywood was always your, you're going to be your better market. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I think that, that we didn't seek to be in that limelight and that may have been the first problem some of that may have been on us because we just didn't we didn't have time or interest in interfacing with it well and i think a lot of that culture right at the same time that twitter was kicking off and um all that stuff was going on um downtown at the convention center with south by southwest and the um, co-op being so close to it and um, you know, just really trying to get local designers on the map. Um, it just, for whatever reason, it just never really got to the point where this cool kids club was willing to step outside of anything that wasn't monetized to be able to lift a leg up. I mean, there's, it's no problem getting a well-known singer to pay them to come and sing at your closing for your fashion show, but it's, you know, not okay to put up a couple posts on your social media to be able to promote somebody. I'm like, I, like, I don't get it. And maybe that's my more charitable brain. Um, and maybe that's where a lot of my heated animosity kind of comes from, but like, I, I don't get it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, in ensuing years, uh, uh, Austin Fashion Week became sort of a showcase for um, Project Runway designers. They were paying Project Runway designers three or four or five thousand dollars to show up mm -hmm. and show the same tired collection that they showed two years ago. Um, a bunch of star fuckers, quite frankly, and and that always seemed so odd to me. And and and. I will tell you that uh, in the first two years of the Project Runway um, anchor draw mm -hmm. designers, our own local Project Runway designer was not offered the same package to show. Mm. Um, they had to throw an absolute fit to be given a room at the W so that they could hang out with their friends from Project Runway. Oh and, and the prevailing idea was, well, you live here. Uh, we don't have to pay you as much. Um, you know, I help them to negotiate that. You, you have to understand that there's more than one type of currency, darling. So um, that became sort of the the whole impetus for doing those shows after a while. I, I don't know. It, it, it was it was nothing that you or I were ever going to want to be part of. Right. And I like um, from um, an exterior perspective, again, having years and distance between it, I think that it's... Um, as an attendee, it would be a very beneficial thing for up and coming designers to go and look at, but the reality of it being a quote unquote fashion week where items are being sold or um, connections are being made with a purchasing market for 
um, them to have longevity of career. And so I would say, um, connecting these dots from your question, that it is much the same here in Denver. I mean, Texas at least had the World Trade Center and there would be fashion weekends. Um, there were specific showrooms within that World Trade Center that were specific to lingerie and that was really clickish on its own, unsurprising. Um, but Denver's market here is a lot smaller and a lot more Western focused or mountain town focused. Which is historic to Denver. They used to be the center for uh, Western wear in the country. Correct. Correct. And so like, yes, that's not my market to be able to create wholesale longevity here in my own hometown. But to that end, I would also say that there is a lot of gatekeep girl bossing going on in in uh, the fashion shows here in Denver, but much like the ones in Austin, um, some in Dallas that I've gone to, some in Houston that I've gone to, San Antonio uh, and New York, that uh, they do not promote the designers and they do not um, have actual buyers or a plan in place to make sure that designers that are showing are getting everything that they need to be able to make that a profitable event for them if they're not going to get paid. Paid in fabric, paid in in kind for PR, um, especially when it's PR slash media companies that are running the fashion shows. I mean, that's the very least they could do. And so, like... And, and you know, I'm going to jump in because I made several deals with those very specific PR people. I did a show for one of them. I did appearances for one of them. I paid for one of them and never got what I was supposed to from them. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, PR is, it shouldn't be subjective. There should be a formula. Um, I was lucky enough in Austin that I had a wonderful PR team. I'll have to look and see if they're um, still around because COVID reasons. Um, and I'm happy to link them um, on our website if I do find them. Um, but they were very prescriptive about um, what they were going to be doing for me. And because it was monies that was that were won from um, uh a, a small business contest that I was entered into, I felt like, okay, I at the very minimum need to see what a PR company can do for my business. I can do a month and um, we can sit down and talk about what that looks like. And it was very beneficial to my particular brain style. You know, they sat down and told me exactly what they did, what those values are. Um, and it was awesome. Um, I, I definitely would say that that type of PR company, if you can find one, would be beneficial. But there's some out there that just, again, they care about the romantic side of um, fashion. And, um, you know, the romantic side is so fleeting, you know, it's mm. the, it's the let down after you have um, your flood of models. It's the, it's the, I got all of my stuff up on the website and I still feel like a failure. It's, you know, it's all of these different um, things that we tell ourselves as, as designers um, when we have that, um, joyous letdown um and those quiet moments with ourselves as we begin to pick things apart <laughs> right right no ab absolutely you know uh, uh e even when i i do shows that are profitable there is the after show crash mm -hmm. always mm -hmm. uh, months and months of high activity and high energy and high expectation and rehearsal and practice and the show's over and 30 minutes and clean up and go home and i think that a lot of that um is Oh, we're going to go there. I feel like a lot of that is indicative of a cycle of abuse and that we would not have this feeling of let oh, down yes. if we actually had the connectivity and sell through by having either actual real media magazines at shows or inviting germane buyers from regional areas front row tickets so that connections can be made to make real sales. And so then you don't have that letdown. You have and, that. And, I got an order. I got to get my shit together. Beyond that, 
there's so much value that could be added. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, beyond that. They showed yeah. some really cool looking things. They're not really ready to sell yet. How about some incubation? Mm-hmm. Or uh, they, they had really good stuff. Their construction's awesome, but they don't know how to skip scale up for mass production to get to market how about some acceleration how yeah. about some basic guidance right how about continuing to promote them throughout the year after those shows uh until you have your next set of designers right how about continuing to expose them it just it just just that alone has value sure and i i built a shopping cart website in two weeks. It's possible. I am a fashion designer. And so part of it was me wanting to prove that it could be done. It can be done. And so in two weeks time, all of these things are up and available when there's years of dubious behavior um, and exposure promises that are taking out some of our finest designers because they can't afford it, which is what you were talking about earlier. And it makes it a difficult decision to jump back in. But if your heart's in it and you're crazy enough, you can do it. (laughs) But like, uh, it's, it's so devastating to me that the loss from COVID and designers who have really amazing talent are just being wiped out because other people want to profit off of that part of it and I, I'm and not give a return and not give aftercare and not get added benefit. It's just anything. anything. It's just like, I, I'm just shaking my head. I'm literally just sitting here shaking my head. It's the thing that gets me heated for sure. Yeah, well, you, 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 it's one of the things that gets us both heated and keeps us both up night. So um, the short answer was no. No. <laughs> right away, Den- no. Immediately, Denver, no. Immediately, Denver no. is not. Okay, Denver, this is a call to get your collective shit together. This is the best fashion designer in your city. This is the woman who could take you to a world stage. Get your shit together, Denver. It would be really, really fun to be able to have the type of showcase of talent in this town that yielded a financial benefit because really that was what my goal in Texas was. Uh It's the same thing that I seem to be super duper passionate about here. And I don't want to shut up about it. Like event promoters will trash you in social media to get you to not say anything bad about what they're doing because they're making money off of it. And like, you know, good for you for taking advantage of a designer who probably will have no energy or money left to buy fabric, but like super duper, (laughs) like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm actually mentoring an amazing um, designer slash costume designer that lives in Denver, Alicia, uh is brilliant um she's she's just had a uh, major surgery but as she recovers we're beginning to talk fashion again and um there are talents there mm-hmm. and there are talents there that would benefit by association with you and if they would like to have um fashion in denver as opposed to hairballs with costumes they might want to start playing nice with you that's all i'm going to say well, and I like, I don't even care. Like part of this is the most love, most hated. I don't care about being nice, but I do care about the truth. Um, right, you know, right. and that whole exactly. discussion about, you know, is this the house of truth? <laughs> huh. Huh. Um, that uh, I care about these event promoters being true with their words like but you know spell it out like this is a beginner show you're you might get exposure but it depends on how much work you personally do do, because we're not going to do anything for you um but like you can get your stuff out there and people can see it sure um but when they're telling them like you're going to get so much exposure you're going to find an agent um, you're going to be discovered you're going to go all the way to uh, hollywood yeah i know it's it's all bullshit Um, And so, you know, I want to, I want to crack it open because I'm tired of being quiet about it. I'm tired of it being the dirty little secrets um, in these, in these prolific fashion communities. Um, And I, 
it hurts my heart to see another designer just kind of drop out or another designer who has been pumped up by everybody around them to think that they're better than they are when they really need to take a surging class or they need uh, some help with like I, elastic <laughs> or, iron. or a steamer. I don't care, but something, just something. I a fucking <laughs> iron and press your fucking seams people. Um, Listen, well, that's a great I, tip I, for the day. Thank you for our ending I, tip. Right? Please press your fucking scenes, people. <laughs> My God. Um, no, I'm 100% with you, although I do have to take exception to you calling either Austin or Denver prolific fashion scenes. They are scenes that wish they were prolific, but they're shooting themselves in the foot to keep that from actually happening. Well, and I guess I mean that the, the community is prolific um, as opposed to the fashion scene being prolific, that, you know, there are a lot of creative people here yes, that are that really missing with. the mark. That I really missing with. it. That so. I agree with. Absolutely. So, yes. Still, press your seams. God damn it. Press your fucking 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 scenes <laughs> Press them. all right so. all right i i love you on that note i need to run to the loo yeah. um have a good day it was good talking with you ma'am it was good talking to you all right talk to you soon bye